Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I'm here today with a very exciting guest, in my opinion, the best beard in the legal space, Jordan Ostroff. Thanks for coming on the show, Jordan. Thank you for having me. I am truly honored. All right. Awesome, man. So I wanted to get in, and you have such an interesting background. I really had a tough time getting a concise list of questions for the interview. But um, one of the things I wanted to start with, and I've just kind of picked this up from following some of your LinkedIn posts. And also, you had a really interesting handle on a couple of platforms, which was Lawyer with a Life. And you take really serious this kind of idea of work-life balance. I guess, how did you get to the point where this is something that's a reality for you? Because I feel like everyone wants to get there, but you're actually there. <laughs> I appreciate that. It started out by being totally miserable and working 80 hours a week and 60 pounds overweight and super in debt and just really not happy. And then I realized what mattered the most to me was not money. It was time and flexibility and freedom. And then my wife, we found out my wife was pregnant with our kid. So that was a whole other thing of needing more time to be able to spend with him. And so we started making as many decisions as we could, prioritizing time and freedom and flexibility instead of money and revenue and whatever. And honestly, I think I've gotten farther and done better doing those because I sort of zigged when everybody else zags. Yeah, that's interesting. And like, um, I want to get to this a little bit later, but like, you know, the, the fact that you're running both the law firm and the marketing company, which is, you know, evidence of the fact they have systems enough to run, you know, not just one business, but two. But, you know, as far as where you're at that point where it was kind of the rock bottom, I guess, could you, um, you know, run us through like, what was the situation where you like a solo at the time? What did the company look like? Yeah. So I grew up in South Florida. I came up to Orlando to go to the, the University of Central Florida. Go Knights, charge on. I stayed here to go to Barry. I don't even know what Barry's chant is. And then I was a prosecutor here. So I had like nine or 10 years in this area had done a mock trial at UCF, mock trial at Barry, had been able to get training from judges and local attorneys and whatnot. So when I jumped to start my practice, I had a lot of connections in the community already, not even realizing what that was worth. So like I did well enough to make enough money to make a bunch of bad decisions with that money, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. At the peak negative moment of my business life, we had four attorneys probably three other staff members. I bought another firm from another attorney that didn't have any systems and processes. So I bought basically all their problems without any of the solutions. Couldn't find other marketing efforts to help. I couldn't find other people to help put the systems in place. And so we were like $200,000 in debt, not including law school, not including a mortgage, not including like legitimate debt, if you will. And it was just, it was not a good moment or not a good month, year, whatever. Yeah. It's kind of interesting you bring that up too. I've never really thought about that. You know, this is something that I've seen. I think they say this a lot in like Vern Harnish's organization, but it's like the biggest likelihood of getting to the situation where you do find yourself like that. It, it tends not to happen at the top and it tends not to happen at the bottom, but it really is in kind of the middle ranges of that, you know, couple partners range. It's like, um, it certainly happened with you, but like, why do you think that happens? So I guess I'm going to flip that a little bit because for me, I always learn more from failure. And mm -hmm. so like buying this other firm 
was my biggest mistake, but actually it was the best thing that I did because of what I learned from it. So I think that, I don't know if people find an issue really in the middle. I, I mean, I guess ultimately I had enough money to overcommit myself. If I had nothing, I wouldn't have been able to overcommit. But I just, I'm a big fan of learning from your mistakes and failures. You're, that's where you grow the most. And so I actually strive to make a bunch of mistakes so that I can learn more from them. <laughs> that's, that's... Not that bad of mistakes again, knock on wood. Yeah. Okay. So let's take us back to the, the point too. So we got a lot of situations. We got the debt house is kind of on fire. You know, what's kind of your order of operations? Like how did you sort of triage that situation? And really like, what was like the first thing you, you looked to fix and then where'd you go from there? So the biggest thing that I looked to fix was my time, not to enjoy it, but to be able to triage more things. So I looked at like, what are the things that I could offload from me the quickest, the cheapest that would save me the most time so that I could throw myself into the larger problems and get this fixed. Okay. That's interesting. And what did this happen to be for the firm at the time? Uh, in terms of what I offloaded? Yeah. I honestly, I couldn't tell you. It was just a, it's a blur of systems and processes and just continuously going down the list. So in essence, what I tell people is track a full week, like literally go through everything that you're doing in the week and how long it takes, see what things come up, see what things take the longest, see what things you think you can offload to, you know, a minimum wage employee or a VA employee. And then that frees you up to have more time to start working on the harder tasks, the higher level tasks, the more customized tasks. So I don't know what my number one, two, five, whatever it was, but that's that's the methodology I would give to anybody. Yeah, and it's actually really interesting too because I think a lot of common like response to this would be to start cutting costs, right? But like I think when people start cutting costs, they're like unknowingly incurring a huge cost of time on themselves. But it's like when you're able to kind of set with that, you at least had the bandwidth to focus on how to get those bigger practices down, right? Yeah. Well, so for me, I cut our marketing budget because I wasn't sure if it was working because I didn't have the right systems in place. But also it was like, if I'm already drowning, why do I need more water thrown on me? Yeah, right. <laughs> so that was the easiest thing to cut. But yeah, I mean, every study that talks about long-term success for law firms always talks about growing top-line revenue. I haven't seen any that talk about the success of lowering overhead just because as attorneys, I mean, we have a license to print money. There is no reason that we can't charge more per hour, generate more cases, close a, a six, eight, nine, ten 10-figure PI case, class action lawsuit, whatever. And so everything looks at increasing that top line, not so much limiting the bottom line. Yeah. I think also there's kind of like a tendency to, and it's like, this is something you hear a lot too. It's like, you know, what makes a good attorney? It's like, you know, being able to look at a contract and find the one thing that doesn't fit. So it's like, I think what drives a lot of people to succeed in the field is just like naturally kind of an orientation to the negative, right? And if it's tough to like suppress that in, in some ways too, but like when you can, like, you know, you, you can't save your way to a seven year firm, right? So yeah. there's so much you can cut, but yeah, let's talk about the marketing a little bit more. So like, I guess uh, as far as the situation and, you know, we'll get to the point that you guys are at today, which is super broad, not only for your, your own firm, but also doing this for other firms. But I guess what was kind of the situation when you guys turned the marketing back on, how'd you guys prioritize getting that house in order? So it was interesting. I pulled the P&Ls at one point. I might be slightly off on the numbers, but like in essence, we were spending about $150,000 a year on marketing. And then the next year when that went to almost zero, my firm did like $5,000 less in business. And that's not to say that the marketing was that wasted. It was to say that we were able to 
double down on referrals, spend more time on recreating the work consistently, building better client relationships, building better referral relationships, building a truly a better business that we were able to make up a lot of that lost revenue from the marketing stuff in you know, other ways. Okay, gotcha. And like the referral is obviously probably one of the cheapest ways to continue to get the cases going. I'm probably coming close to zero. But when you guys ended up turning it back on, like what did you guys focus on? So I focused on really thinking about my ideal client. And to be honest, that the answer to that question has changed a number of times over the history of our firm. But basically at that point, our ideal client was going to be a student or an early 20s person at some sort of professional job that would have some sort of criminal case. And so from the student's perspective, the academic stuff is very similar to what they would go through with like licensing for a realtor or a barber backed by a criminal case. And so the more that I had that, you know, ideal client avatar in mind, the more I could vet what marketing made the most sense to them. So, you know, knowing that I went to try to go speak over at UCF to fraternities and sororities. We started running our ads in that area or running our ads outside of that area for parents who had previously looked at, you know, UCF or colleges in Orlando or Valencia or what it was along those lines. And then what else did we do? And we also started looking at some of the social media stuff that was more focused on younger people there. So I don't even remember what it was. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeti or something. I don't know. There was like a, something like that that was making the rounds on campus. Yeah, I'm trying to think. <laughs> was it too long ago that was? Oh God, I actually remember. Was that the one where it was like uh, you, you told a secret anonymously and like that was? Uh, I'm trying to think. I have no idea what the platform was. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like a bunch of college kids are using this, so like put ads there. I never used the platform. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I guess I never used the actual platform. I used their ad platform. Yeah. Hey, well, if it worked at the end of the day, that's the important thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And as far as like, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting too. Like, I think, you know, there's kind of a hidden lesson there with like the fact that you guys were so focused on the client avatar, it almost didn't really matter what, like, you know, you didn't have to know, <laughs> you have to know what the platform is to get it to work. Well, yeah. And that's the thing. Like when you, like, I go back to how dumb I was for the first, I don't know, two or three years of running my firm where it was like, Hey, what about buying, you know, these leads? What about advertising in a, at a local bar? What about like all these things that in retrospect, we're not wrong, period, but we're so wrong for me, so wrong for my firm, so wrong for what we were trying to do, but I didn't know enough to say no, which was my problem. Yeah, gotcha. And like, as far as kind of situation, like zooming all the way forward today, you know, you're running legally as a marketing agency, like how important do you think the avatar process is to like people that are coming to you for advice and for help in different programs? Essential. Like that is... If you don't have your ideal client avatar in mind, if you're not consistently looking at that and tweaking it and changing it and thinking like that person and writing to that person and trying to be where that person's going to be, you're wasting time, money, resources, and you're preventing yourself from being as successful as you can. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as far as like people that might not have one of these in mind, like what's the kind of basic process that, I mean, well, I can also ask you too personally. It's like, as far as like how you ended up settling on the avatar that ended up working for you, like how did you end up going for that? In terms of for the law firm? Yeah. Or I guess, I, how, how do people, how do you recommend people think about this generally if it's a blank slate? Oh, yeah. So I have, I've got a worksheet that I've sent people and it's like 35 questions. But honestly, this is like the most fun thing you can do. If mm. you're not sure about this, literally, I would get together with you and your significant other, your spouse, everybody else at the firm, 
you know, or I guess on Zoom with with COVID and everything, and yeah. just be like, hey, create Steve for me, create Julie for me, like put together somebody walking in the door, contacting us. What do we want them to look like? And I don't mean that like physically look like, but what do we want their problem to be? How old do we want them to be? What do we want their job to be? Uh, what do we want their history to be? What do we want their hobbies and interests to be? And then, you know, you obviously have to make sure that that matches what you're trying to do. Like, I'm sure all of us would love to represent ultra high net worth multi-billionaires who, <laughs> you know, pay us $1,000 an hour for whatever it is. But like, if we're doing traffic tickets that, you know, those things don't align. Um, but it's a really interesting and fun experience to create that person in essence. And then you start thinking like them, like then you get to play that role play of, you know, if I'm a 20 year old college student who just got a DUI, what am I doing? Am I telling my parents? Probably not. So what am I doing? I'm going to talk to my friends. You know, I know that that one kid in my one class that disappeared for six weeks because he went to jail. Like, what did you do? And then don't hire that lawyer, you know, find a better one, whatever it is along those lines. Um, it can actually be a lot of fun. And then honestly, you just test it, you try it, you give it a shot, and then you, you know, refer back to see what works and what doesn't work because there will always be mistakes or there will always be lost opportunities, I guess let's call them. Yeah, no, that's, that's super interesting. And like one of the things, and like, this is, this is a conversation, this is like a topic that comes up like a fair bit on the podcast too. It's like, you know, we always talk about the, the, the importance of niching and like, you know, using your guys's case, it's like, you know, you guys didn't set out to be the best criminal firm in Florida. Like you guys set out to be the best criminal firm in that area for that avatar. Right. And I always kind of like talk about stuff about like, you know, it's, it's always a tension between like the total volume of people that you want to talk to and like the, you know, the fitting to the avatar. So I guess like from that point, like once you have your avatar in place, you know, how do you know if you have an avatar that's big enough? Great question. I don't know if there's an answer other than you try it and see. Mm-hmm. And the more that you are comfortable with the amount of cases, the more you're comfortable with what you're doing, the easier it is to say no to things that are on the fence or not your avatar. I, you know, I don't fault anybody who takes cases that they probably shouldn't because they really truly need the money. You just mm-hmm. need to have a plan and process in place to start turning those cases down because it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to help you grow the firm. You're not going to be able to really be known for something if you're taking anything that comes in the door. And you're not going to be as good handling every single case under the sun. You're not going to build as great relationships with other attorneys by referring them cases and getting the cases you are the best at back to you. And you're going to miss out on a lot the longer that you don't allow yourself to truly focus. It's a really interesting point because it's like, I think mean, a lot of the times people think about this from like a marketing perspective, but um, yeah, I mean, if, if this is probably a good opportunity to segue to talking about process stuff a lot more, because like ultimately, you know, you can have that retainer that comes in, but if you're not getting good at that one type of thing that you're doing, you're not gaining ground while other people are not, right? Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because look, I'm a big fan of do whatever you want to do, but strive to be the best at it. Like if you want to work in the fast food industry, be the best burger flipper, whatever, that's, that's totally fine. I have no qualms about that. What I have qualms about is people that get involved in something and mail it in. And, <laughs> yeah. and unfortunately, like there are a lot of attorneys doing that, not by choice. You know, you get the average solo attorney making between 40 and $60,000 a year who may have $150,000 in law school debt, plus business debt, plus a mortgage, plus you know, whatever it is, plus maybe a spouse that lost their job for COVID, like I, I get it and do what you got to do, but take whatever extra time you can and work yourself into a position to not have to make those sacrifices as quickly as you can. 
Yeah, absolutely. And now like um, also being able to kind of fast forward and see where you ended up getting from that kind of like start story. It's like, you know, you've obviously put a lot of time into process to get to the point where a lot of the stuff is running more or less automated without your involvement for a lot of it. So, I mean, we can kind of go back to that story, but I mean, I'm just curious, like how in general do you think about offloading a process that you're handling today and you want somebody else to be doing tomorrow? So it was Jim Hacking said this, or I guess I shouldn't say that Jim Hacking was involved in this conversation. I don't remember if he said it or if it was a guess, but he talked about in essence the, you know, if somebody can do it 80% as well, you want to pass it off to them. But they added the fact that like that gives you that much more time to get it to that 100% mark. And so that was the thing that I never understood. You know, I was always like, look, I want to be the best. I can do it better than anybody else, which is totally not true. Uh, in, for so many reasons, but really the, it's more like if they can get it good enough, I can get it to where it needs to be in a lot less time. And mm-hmm. so for a lot of these processes that you're doing as an attorney, that's probably the first step. And the benefit of that extra is then you send it back to the paralegal, the legal assistant, the other attorney who got it to 80% of where it needs to be. You give them the other 20%, you explain to them why it's there. And then the next time it should be 85% the way you need. And then you do the 15% and you give them the feedback and then it should be, you know, it should work its way up for them to do it. At this point, like I'm not a burden to my firm, but I don't, (laughs) I run a meeting once a week for the firm and that's it because they're better at what they're doing than I am. Like that is their, everybody has their kingdom in our firm that they are in charge of that they are so much better at than I am. And I just get brought in to bounce ideas, make sure that everybody did their other tasks that we are consistently making things smoother and better, but they're the ones doing it because they're in control. They're smarter about it. They're more knowledgeable about it. They're more invested in it. They're more interested in it. They're better at it. And they've got totally different skills than me. Yeah. I definitely want to dig into the conversation about empowerment because it seems like you guys have been doing a lot of that. But before that, I just want to clarify one thing. So are you saying that for the most part, when you have a new process in the firm, you're letting them take it from zero to 80. And then at that point, they're giving you back to feedback. Like you don't need like a new process. You're not the first pair of hands to touch that. At this point, no, at the beginning. So going remote is perfect for this. Mm. Just screen share, get in a Zoom meeting, get in Google Meet, even by yourself, record your screen, walk through doing it the way you want it done, and then send it to the person who's supposed to do it. And then work with them on the next couple, track to see what's going on, fill in what's going to happen. And then ultimately you get to a point where it's like, all right, and now it's yours. And in three months, let me know, how can you make it better? Like, what can you do? What have you learned from doing this over and over again that can take it to the next level? That's how I think you have to start it when you're offloading things for the first time. At this point, like I am, I don't even know the Wi-Fi in my firm. It just, (laughs) they send me a post-it note when, when it gets changed and I update it. Like I'm just out of so much of that stuff. Yeah. And as far as like, you know, you have a situation where the team's handling it, but you know, how much of this was, I guess, nature versus nurture. Are you hiring people that have the capability to do it? Or is it through going through this process that people are able to develop their own ability to create things like this? Fantastic question. So I'm going to give you sort of a lawyer answer and then let me know if I actually answered it. <laughs> okay, The gotcha. biggest problem that people, the biggest mistake that I see people making with hiring is twofold. It is not doing it soon enough, which I get the you know, you're taking on quite a bit of risk. And two, it's prioritizing experience over skills, over talent, over ability, over interest. And I have done it and I still do it. Don't get me wrong. 
But those are the two things that I see blowing up in people's faces, um, which is not to say you won't find great people who are talented, but if you have somebody who's got the experience and the talent, then don't worry about the cost. If you're worrying about cost, I'd rather take somebody with the right mindset, the right skills, the right techniques than with the experience. And I think like the easiest way to explain that is when you're hiring somebody to answer the phone at your law firm, probably for the most part, I'd rather have somebody who's never worked in a law firm before, but comes to me from Disney customer service or work at a fancy hotel or something along those lines than the person who's got 20 years in a law firm because they probably weren't doing it my way as opposed to this person's got better training than I'm ever going to give them from you know what may have been like a summer job in college you know that may give them these incredible skills that they can bring into our office for the betterment of everybody else internally and our clients and I don't think a lot of people make those decisions because we think that like oh we're the ivory tower of law no one will ever understand this when really I think we need to understand people and you can learn the law a lot easier than you can learn how to interact with other humans from a lawyer perspective, from a staff member perspective, from a legal perspective. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess like outside of the realm of like, you know, attorneys that are actually providing the service, like you also get like a you know big opportunity to bring some learnings from other industries too. Like, it's kind of funny. I mean, I can imagine if you hired that person from Disney, I bet their customer service training is top notch. I would love to crib those notes if I had the opportunity for sure. And then as far as kind of like, a, and then this might be kind of a rapid fire one, if, if people aren't hiring soon enough, what do you recommend for people as their first hire, take some time off and get themselves on the right track? Like person wise, or how do I rationalize the mindset? I guess both. We'll start with person. So person, you want somebody that is going to be able to follow your lead and follow your lead and take it farther, follow your lead and do it faster, follow your lead and whatever it is along those lines. Because from the mindset standpoint, I think we get stuck focusing on cost, but really you need to focus on opportunity cost. You know, if you have enough work to be billing $250 an hour, and instead you're doing filing for an hour, you're in essence costing yourself 250 bucks. So if you can hire somebody for $10 an hour to do an hour of filing, you bill your hour 50, now you've made 200 or your 250, you've got, you made 240 because the 250 minus the 10 bucks you paid them, as opposed to you losing out on $250, you've got an almost $500 swing between having that person do it and having you do it. And that's where I think a lot of law firm owners get stuck is they're like, well, it's going to cost me $30,000 to bring this person on or whatever the number is. I'm like, great, at $250 an hour times 10 hours a week times 52 weeks a year, that $30,000 person just saved you $750,000. Yeah, okay. <laughs> like putting the numbers like that, that absolutely makes a ton of sense too. And then like, do you, like, would you recommend somebody go into like helping people, I mean, helping themselves out on like the fulfillment side or like, you know, one of these admin positions or like, what's like a good place to start? Do you think? Fantastic question. There is no right answer because the right answer is have them start doing what you don't want to do. So I tell all law firm owners, you're looking at three things that you should be aiming for. How much money do I want to make? How much do I want to work? And what actual work do I want to be doing? And that third prong of those questions is going to answer for you who you should bring on first. Me, I hated e-filing. 
It was my least favorite thing. I don't know anything about e-filing in any other state, but in Florida, there's like no API. It cannot integrate with anything else, or at least it couldn't when the last I checked. And it's like 15 buttons of clicking through, like this is the case number, this is the county, this is whatever. So I gave that to a law student for whatever it was, 10 bucks an hour as quickly as possible because I hated it. And then I found out what was the next thing that I hated. And I went from there, uh, mixed in with what would save me the most time. Great, gotcha. And I, I know we kind of breezed over this in the beginning, but I'm really curious about that exercise that you mentioned earlier about going through like on the week to week basis. So like getting down kind of in the nitty gritty, like how do you do this time tracking process? And you know, what kind of increments are we talking about? Like how, do, how does somebody run that to get an idea of where their time's actually going? So what we've had people do is an Excel spreadsheet and they go by the clock and just clock your entire day. And it's like, I understand you're going to be 10 to 15% less efficient because not only are you doing billable hours or not only are you handling cases, but you're also writing down mm. on the sheet, but you get an idea for it. And so, you know, and I have people put in like, look, put in going to the bathroom, put in making coffee, put in making lunch, whatever. Like I'm not, I'm not using this to tell you that you're wasting time. I'm using this to figure out what of your time we can offload the easiest. I'm not bringing in a personal chef to take lunch off your plate. But if I <laughs> yeah. find out that my you know, head paralegal is spending two hours a day fixing documents from the legal assistant or filing or something that shouldn't be their job, we can address those ASAP. Mm, interesting. And you know, like, that's the thing too. It's like, I feel like it's, it's such a nebulous thing. And like, you know, COVID of all times too, like, I can't even tell you what month it is sometimes, let alone what I did last week. So I think a lot of people could probably be worthwhile going to do that kind of exercise. Okay. So I wanted to switch gears in terms of talking about the agency. So this is something that I, I used to kind of like flippantly say to clients when they were talking about like, oh yeah, we need to have this copy or this copy. And like, look, honestly, if you guys want to have this much control over the process, you might as well just, you know, don't run a law firm, run an agency. And then you actually did that. <laughs> so yeah. I kind of wanted to talk about that process. You know, what was the kind of timeline? Like I kind of gathered that, you know, you were, you guys were running a lot of this stuff in house, but how'd you make the decision? And like, you know, what led you to, to, to doing that in the first place? So started in-house as my own solution to the problem that I couldn't find the right solution from anybody else. And then I realized that was my blue flame. That was where I burned the hottest. That was what I truly enjoyed. Running a business and doing marketing is what truly, not gets me up in the morning, but like it's what I truly enjoy when I have to do work. And, or I guess to the extent that sometimes I don't even think it's work where mm -hmm. I, I don't feel that way about legal work. Like legal work is work and it's worth what somebody will pay you for it often, but it was not my, it was not my thing. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, let me work with a couple other people that I know locally. Let me see if it works for them the same way it worked for me. Like, let me see if I, I I'll learn by working with them. And really we found out that a lot of the same things work. It's not a question of we had the same ideal client, but I had them answer the same questions that I answered to come up with my ideal client. And then we took the same steps from there to go where they're going to be, to be where they're ideal client is going to go and who they're going to talk to. And so it was crazy to see the replicability of the same methodology. And then finally, I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's see what happens. Let's try to sell this. And uh, here we are. Yeah. And then as far as like the team is like, is it the, the team that was originally working in house that ended up becoming the agency or like, how did that kind of scale out from there? So I had, let's call it pick the brain of somebody who really knew marketing, who was local who has since now become my business partner on the explosion of this because I have never worked in an agency. I've never, well, I guess now, before yeah. now, I've never run an agency before now. So like there are things that are going to be way different. There are things that are hyper-technical. 
even a lot of it's just lingo. Like I have the word hard stop is my new favorite thing. Never used that before until now. Like that's our big, you know, we've got the proposal meeting with a hard stop uh, and whatnot along those lines. And then I've only taken one person from the law firm who actually is split. She's in a really good spot to be overseeing social media for both companies internally from the same mindset and doesn't even work with any clients in either direction of the companies. Otherwise, there's no other crossover. Yeah, that's interesting. And like having sat on both sides of the table too, it's kind of interesting because like, you know, you had a part of your career where you're working with, I guess, how would I call it? Regular Joes. Now you have a situation where you're on the other side of the table working with attorneys as clients, I guess, what's your perspective on working with, with either form? Like, you know, what kind of, you know, have you gained any perspective on blind spots that you might've had that people who are listening to the show might have that they don't realize about themselves? Good question. Yes. I'm going to call some attorneys out, not by name, but before that, so we did legal ease marketing EASE because I really like dad jokes. If you follow me on TikTok, <laughs> it's all bad dad jokes with me and my kid. But I have found that to actually be a really good name idea because one of the biggest things I try to do as a lawyer was explain legal terms to somebody who wasn't a lawyer. And now from the marketing side, I try to explain marketing terms to somebody who's not a marketer, but they're a lawyer. Yeah. And so like I'm translating legalese into marketees and marketees into legalese and all that into normal English. What I have found that's interesting has been, I think a lot of attorneys would learn how their clients feel by going through the process of pitching other attorneys. And so like I, I get ghosted all the time by lawyers who I'm sure hate when their clients or their potential clients ghost them. I get price sensitivity from lawyers all the time by lawyers who I'm sure hate when their clients have the same price sensitivity. I get, you know, they don't see the value from lawyers all the time who I'm sure don't understand why their clients don't see the value from their own legal services. And I think it's been such an interesting concept to get that feeling and I'm trying to figure out how you convey that to lawyers, not because I care about how they treat me, but I care about them using that understanding to help them do a better job closing their clients and getting over you know, the objections that their clients would have. Yeah, it's actually super interesting because I don't know if this is out yet, but I did record a podcast on this, uh, on, on the topic too. But I think it all kind of boils down to like what people... It's like people have a fundamental philosophy of what they find acceptable in life. So if you think that a sale needs to take 14 you know, meetings to close and you need to call 38 references and all of this rigmarole, don't be surprised when that ends up coming on your doorstep because on some level, you've micro-communicated and you're not going to be angry at someone if they... Use, I mean, on some on some level, you might it, it's not super <laughs> be a little bit hypocritical if you are, but yeah, it's like you know, it's it's kind of a, I think like people you know you, you kind of see not to be like super woo woo about it, but you end up kind of seeing what you put out in the universe in some way, right? Yeah, I like I want to find a way to craft an email that's just like, hey, do you remember how I called you five times and sent you six emails and you've opened all of them because I can see that, but you've never responded. That's totally cool. I just want you to be aware that when you get upset that clients do that to you, like understand what you're feeling. Like, why did you avoid me? Because the clients are thinking the same thing for you. So how do you translate that objection to prevent it? And, but I can't, I can't rationalize that in a non-douchey way. <laughs> and tough. so like, I'm trying, if I get to it, like I'm going to do it. And, Cause like, I, I genuinely mean it for their benefit. Like I would rather a lawyer be happy and not be my client. Like I have no problem with that if you are happy. It's when you're miserable and inaction is the reason you're not my client or Albert Einstein, you know, insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. Like that's when I get upset. 
Yeah. I was going to say, I don't have too much of a solution for you either. I'll let you know if I find one, but it's the best that we've had is, is let karma sort them out, which isn't the, which probably isn't the most productive, but um, no, it's, it's really interesting. And like, you know, as, as far as kind of the mindset stuff, it's like, you know, you bring a really interesting perspective from you know your history on that stuff too. But as far as kind of channels and stuff go, like, have you seen things change from, I guess, either the time when you were in, in house to like, you know, what are you excited about today as far as, you know, changes in, I guess the broader marketing landscape. So really interesting you mentioned this. So like I have totally stolen Gary V's model. Like in essence, I'm trying to be the Gary V, top of funnel, create awareness, you know, all that stuff. And the problem that I've always had is I don't think he talks about tactics enough. But now from this side, I'm like, oh, because the tactics change all the time. There is no way to have evergreen tactics. And then like on LinkedIn, my specific tactics posts die. Like my audience does not care about like, here's a really good tip when you're running Facebook ads, do this instead of that. Like it's not their wheelhouse. And so um, it's been really interesting to see the fact that I just don't think that our clients really care about that. And to some extent they shouldn't. Like in essence, they're hiring us to deal with the tactic changes versus them having to worry about it themselves. So I don't know if that answered your question or not. Well, yeah, I mean, just as far as things that are changing too, because it's like, you know, you guys have a really big like breadth of services on terms of stuff that you guys offer at Legally. So, I mean, like, if not that, I also was kind of curious about like, you know, you guys have a lot of stuff. Like, how do you get these these different channels to play with each other? So that goes back to that ideal client avatar. You know, Mm -hmm. like that's why I never saw the merit in like we sell pay-per-click ads Mm -hmm. or we sell SEO or like being solution specific unless you're going to be client specific. Like if you're only working with car accident lawyers, I get only selling pay-per-click ads because for the most part, that's going to work for them. It's intent-based, something just happened. So our perspective is like the, you look at it as us offering broad solutions. I look at it as that gives us the right tools for each individual project. Right. And so that allows us to have these things all work together because in essence, it's like, where is your ideal client going to be? You know, if you're trying to target younger people, how cool would it be if on some random day they're listening to a podcast on Spotify on the way to work, then they get home and they're playing YouTube ads and then they're messing around on Facebook after that. And then you've got ads in those three spots and they happen to catch your ad three times throughout the course of their day. And they're your ideal client. I think that's just a strong pitch. Obviously, you know, if you retarget, you can jump that. But if you've thought like them, and if you've tried to market to them, you're going to get enough people that literally you are marketing to their life. It's going to be amazing and really difficult for them to avoid you. Yeah. So, I mean, you're basically omnipresent to that person as long as you do it, like, you know, if you have the right channels. I'm like, just curious for like for different firms and different avatars, is it the same mix? Or are you guys going for different ones every time? No, it totally. Well, for sometimes it's totally different. Others, mm-hmm. it's not. Um, we've had some where literally our entire marketing campaign has been to referral sources that we're not even trying to target clients. You know, we're trying to get that estate planning attorney in front of a bunch of financial advisors at scale. We're trying to get that real estate attorney in front of a bunch of realtors or title companies or mortgage brokers. And it's been crazy to see the success of a lot of those while everybody's still stuck inside from COVID, while everybody's, you know, not going out to lunch, that we have these people booking Zoom calls. You know, how often does that lead to referrals? I don't know. I'll, well, I'll know more the longer that we do it. But it's been really interesting to hit what to hit the solution people are trying to get or trying to solve the problem rather than giving them a consistent solution. 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because it's like, I find it very impressive that you guys are having success with these, these channels. And it's like, you know, what would you say are the commonalities that allow you guys to win on channels like, you know, Spotify or, you know, LinkedIn outbound message? Like what's, what's, uh, you know, how do you guys have this? What, what, what plays across the different channels, I guess. So the ideal client, their demographics and trying to create their normal day. You know, if you're a business law attorney and you're trying to get in front of, you know, small to medium sized business owners, what are they going to do in their normal day? You know, in the past, they'd go to the Chamber of Commerce meeting, they'd be in a BNI chapter, maybe they're doing some digital stuff. But now, like, what are they doing today? Are they on LinkedIn? Are they in Facebook groups? Are they on, you know, like, what is their normal day? And who are they talking to or interacting with in their normal day? And then you try and get in front of them there and you try and get connected with the people that they're talking to. It's crazy because the more specific you get with that, the more you're willing to pay for marketing efforts because you know that they're in the right place. Right. And it's like, you know, it's, it's also like less competition. If you think about it too, it's like, you know, who doesn't know how to throw up a, a Google ad these days, but like, if you're the person who's cracking these, these channels that no one else is on, that's a huge advantage as well. Yes. But you're not, you're not just cracking the channel. You are figuring out who's already on that channel. Who's already on that platform. Who's already engaged. And then you're finding, are they the client for this firm? I'm not going to tell you that we have created a marketplace, but if we you know where people are shopping, you know which market to be in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's like, it's really funny because it's, it's like, you guys have such an interesting approach and it, it's almost inverting the way that we've always approached things. I find it so fascinating because it's like the order of which you guys are putting things down is is totally different, but it totally works, which is which is really awesome to see. As the last thing I wanted to talk about too was I noticed that you guys have some stuff around automated marketing on lead and like, um, you know, I guess like intake type stuff, which is kind of like a commonality across all these you know different potential platforms. So, you know, I guess, what do you think is important about these things too? Like there's so many solutions that are out there as far as, you know, CRMs and, you know, autoresponder sequences. I was like, what do you think is really important stuff that people should be focusing on? Great question. So I look at this a little bit differently because my perspective is the more that you are consistent, which usually means automated for some of these things, but the more that you are consistent, the more you know what's working before the consistency and afterwards. You know, I talk to law firms all the time and Clio Trends will tell you like 68% of lawyers don't follow up with leads more than once. So in that perspective, like what's the point of sending that person leads if they're never going to follow up? Because what'll happen is the months that they're dead, they follow up a bunch, sign a bunch of cases up, then they get busy and they stop following up. And then you have no idea if the ads are still working or they're making any difference or if it's the efforts of the firm. So by making that intake system more consistent, you can see the benefit of what's coming into it a lot better. And you free up the time to be more personalized because you're going to get those people that want, you know, a second consultation just to ask you the same five questions that every client has, but like they need it to be that formal. And now you've got the flexibility and freedom to do that because you're not sending out 35 emails to every other lead. You know, those are done automatically in the system. So basically, yeah, if you have the volume there, then you don't necessarily, I mean, if, if you can, if you can filter it, then you don't have to deal with everyone too. It's like, it's kind of like an inverse sort of relationship, right? And even though, and even when you're at the low end, the trackability of this and the consistency of it helps you not waste money that you don't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like time, time you don't have either too, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And as far as like any, I mean, I don't know if this is like a geeky tech question, <laughs> like what do you guys use as far as your stack? Tech stack wise? Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Google suite as you know, the backbone with all of those. Uh, we are CRM agnostic as a company. Mm. I personally like Lawmatics because that's what I found for my firm at the time that I needed it. But we've worked with, you know, any of those CRMs for other law firms. I don't even know what our video people are using for the video stuff from there. But it's just, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm a fan of the less, so the fewer systems that you are using, the fewer software that you're using as, you know, if it'll do 90% of what you need, 90% as well as you need it, you're going to scale so much better. And then you're in the position to be like, hey, this person's the only one with access to Photoshop, Adobe, Final Cut Pro, you know, what, whatever it is that their job entails, the more that you have 15 different systems across the whole firm, law firm and otherwise, the more you have to spend training everybody, the longer it takes for them to be good at their job, the longer it takes for them to do tasks repetitively enough to become better and better at it. So I am, I'm not a fan of jack of all trades. I think you give everybody their expertise and I think you cross train everybody with one or two other positions when people are sick or out and you just let them, you know, run wild. Yeah. I gotta say too, like, as far as, you know, looking at the scoreboard, the amount of time that you guys are able to, to take as, as far as, you know, running the business versus being in the weeds, it seems like that's probably a winning approach. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I, you know, I just, it's the biggest. So again, you know, we go back to the hiring, but like retention is a huge part as well, because you're going to, if you bring in the right person, you need to keep them. And I think these law firms, these businesses that I talk to, law firms or otherwise, that are like, hey, we're using Zapier to link Google Forms with Constant Contact, with Dubsado, with BombBomb, with Loom, with this, with that. Like, holy crap. Like, that's a whole day's lesson just on like what system does what. Like, where do you have to log in to get to what you need? And I think that you don't get as happy employees if they're getting trained every week on a new system and a new service and a new process and a new design, as opposed to being like, look, this is your responsibility. This is your ownership. This is your house or whatever it is. You tell us how to make it better. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because it's like, I've, I've gotten some feedback too. And this is more like friends talking about their crappy managers and that kind of stuff too. Like two sides of this. One is like, you know, no one likes the manager who's got a new initiative every three days. <laughs> and the second thing is, you know, I, I've kind of noticed this on the client side too. And tell me if you've seen this too. Like a lot of the times I've found this type of person that just kind of enjoys making complex systems for complex systems sake. And normally this isn't a super successful person. And I think nine out of 10 times they're doing that so they can avoid, you know, making an uncomfortable call to a prospect that they don't want to make. But, you know, as you pointed out, it's like, there's a huge organizational cost to this complexity, let alone your own time, right? Yeah. So from what you're talking about, the, the metaphor that I use is a law firm is like a boat. If it's just you and it's small, you've got that little John boat and you're turning on a dime. But mm -hmm. as you build, you end up as this giant cruise ship. And if, you know, God forbid anybody's been on a cruise ship where somebody went <laughs> overboard, but like it's a mile and a half to like turn that ship around to come back to try and find somebody. And so you have to look at your law firm the same way. Like if you're going to change directions and pivot, the bigger you are, the harder that's going to be to do from an organizational standpoint, which is why I think you've seen a lot of the AMLAW, uh, a lot of the big firms have to lay off a ton of people because they couldn't make the COVID pivot. Whereas a lot of the smaller firms were like, hey, need us to do bankruptcy next month? 
great. I'm going to take the CLE now and we're good to go. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And at the end of the day too, like it kind of boils down to, you know, sometimes one of the easiest ways to get good process to keep it simple, right? A million percent. <laughs> okay. And I got to say too, I don't know if I'm going to get a pithy end to the, uh, the conversation. So, you know, and we're also getting to the end of the hour. So um, yeah, Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I definitely, you know, as far as what's the best place, uh, what's the best place for people to get in touch and, and get in your world? Sure. My ideal spot to connect is on LinkedIn. So basically what I looked at is I think attorneys need to have about $5,000 a month to have a, a disposable, to have enough stuff to put into marketing, to try different channels, solutions, you know, get enough volume to figure out whether it works. So my question became, how do you help people get to that level at scale? And so my goal on LinkedIn is to share the knowledge that a law firm owner needs to run a better firm, build a better business, make more money for free at scale from musings inside my brain on LinkedIn. That's awesome. And like, I follow these all the time. Hashtag Jordan O in the know. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, somebody gave me that advice and I was like, this is the most vain thing I've ever done, but let's see what happens. I think now I have two followers. One of them is me on it. So there's somebody else out there that is genuinely interested in what I have to say. You're, you're living rent-free in my head, man. So yeah. it's, it's working at least three. Hey, I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, let's do that other one. You might just be the second one. <laughs> the hashtag. It's a double check. But um, Jordan, I appreciate you for taking the time to uh, talk to us and the listeners today. And um, yeah, for everyone else, we'll see you guys next week, uh, Tuesday, 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.